Hier komen we in vreemd. Welcome to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen, never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, thank you to our Patreon supporters who continue to keep um, financially donating to the show. We appreciate it. And if anyone else wants to join those people, you can at patreon.com forward slash Red Flag Radio podcast. Um, even a couple of dollars a month really um, helps us out with what we're able to do and expand the reach of Red Flag Radio to a wider audience as well. And that seems pretty important at the moment because there's a massive um, uprising happening in the centre of world capitalism in the United States um, that was sparked obviously by the racist police murder of George Floyd and has led to a whole... Um, revival of discussion that probably would have seen unimaginable just a few weeks ago about what sh we should do as a society, I guess, about the police. Um, and the debates are now at the level of, do you want to defund the police? Do you want to disband the police? Do you want to abolish the police? And these are, you know, editorials, um, columns in the New York Times. I even saw an article on news.com.au which was about the difference between defunding and abolishing the police, which is a Murdoch news website, and uh, I never thought that would happen, and that's where we are. Um, so people are also thinking then about and discussing for the first time many people and many people listening to this podcast about the history of their police, kind of what the role of the police is in society. And so that's what we're going to be talking about on this episode with a couple of friends of Red Flag Radio now, Emma Norton and Luca Tavant from Sydney and Melbourne, respectively. Welcome back to Red Flag Radio. Let's jump straight in with the history of the police. So, Luca, why don't we start with you? Um, what sort of led to the first development of the police? Where did this idea come from? How did it happen? Yeah, well, I think uh, to a lot of people, it seems like uh, today that the police have been around, you know, f uh, from time immemorial since the dawn of humanity. But it's actually looking back at the history, it's very interesting because the police are a very uh, modern invention, I think. And the police force, as we kind of know it today, um, I think began to, took, to take uh, shape as a result of a series of processes that were really about um, setting up capitalism as a system that's kind of come to um, dominate our lives. And you can kind of pinpoint, I think, three main places where the cops uh, start to emerge as an institution. So the first one, interestingly, actually, is um, with the kind of massive expansion of slavery in the American South, um, which was, I think a lot of people would know, a very essential process for the establishment of capitalism. The cotton fields picked by slaves were what fueled the Industrial Revolution and made uh, industrial capitalism a possibility. Um, the cops in the United States actually emerged uh, out of slave patrols, who essentially their role was to, uh, they were kind of posses, gangs formed of people, um, vigilantes, who would track down and return uh, escaped slaves uh, to their owners to kind of keep that system of human property uh, intact. The second place where they start to emerge is um, the British colonisation of Ireland um, and obviously the establishment of colonies for some of the first capitalist powers is a really crucial process, again, for creating a world market and establishing their supremacy over the rest of the world. And in Ireland, um, 
islands occupied initially by the British Army, but they find that just, um, you know, an army is good for invading a country, but for managing a, a population that you want to oppress and exploit, um, an army occupation over the long term is not a very sustainable thing. Really, all soldiers are good at is uh, killing people. And so um, the Royal Ulster Constabulary was the first kind of uh, modern police force, um, which was invented by uh, Robert Peel. People would know um, Robert Peel, um, the Bobbies, as they call them in Brit Britain, the British police are um, named for him. Um, he, he established them as a new type of institution that was actually uh, essentially organized to suppress and uh, coerce, a, you know, an occupied population over the long term by surveilling communities, by being you know, able to deal out violence against people uh, that rose up and preemptively kind of nip in the bud any uprisings that might be um, a, res a result of the occupation. Um, the last thing was um, the kind of urbanization that came with the development of capitalism, working class people being concentrated for the first time in really, really big towns and centers of industry, which obviously created a group of people that uh, really scared the, the new capitalist ruling class um, because workers could organize collectively, get together, have meetings, and they had a huge amount of social power and their ability to shut down production. And so in many cases, the first police forces in you know countries like um, Britain and the United States and big urban centers were uh, kind of copied from the models of the slave patrols and the, um, the Irish police force and applied to their own uh, local populations as a tool for social control. Um, so you'll notice with all those examples, like one thing that they're not about is fighting crime. And I think a lot of people have a conception that the police, um, you know, the kind of origin of the police were in some detective agency where a group of people got together and started dusting for fingerprints or something like that. But really it was about different techniques to repress and surveil uh, potentially rebellious populations that wanted to fight back against conditions of exploitation. Emma, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, well, I think I think that starting point of people weren't afraid of crime or something, or I mean, the ruling class kind of was on one level, but um, there was not an uh, equal appreciation of the need for police in the early 1800s when it was being established. Uh, it was resisted and hated by ordinary people and seen as a real imposition on their uh, their rights. Uh, and at the same time, it was something that was really campaigned for by particularly the like we wealthy merchant class, the slave owners in the American South, uh, the merchants who became rich off um, the slave colonies in, uh, in England and, and so on, factory owners, people like that who wanted order. Um, and actually, uh, someone who is a really celebrated bourgeois economist and, and philosopher is Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations. And the original title of The Wealth of Nations was actually uh, a, a lectures on the police, um, because he was part of a whole coterie of, uh, of wealthy merchants and, and uh, bourgeois economists who were arguing for a more, um, you know, kind of violent approach to containing the, um, the working class at that time. Uh, and he said quite famously in that civil government, so far as it is instituted for the sanctity of property, is in reality instituted for the defence of the rich against the poor. And I think that kind of sums up um, some of the the institutions that came into being at this time, both the police, but also prisons and um, and the courts and so on. Um, so I think a good way of thinking about the police uh, at this time is that they solved a series of problems that the capitalist system had created. Um, there's an inherent contradiction in the system, which is that on the one hand, the capitalist system, because it's based on competitive accumulation for profit, requires a stable, controlled, orderly system that operates almost like clockwork. You want the peaceful operation of markets, of factories, of transport, and so on. And even, in a, even a minor disruption to that can cause serious economic damage. But on the other hand, like Lucas said, it created actually the most unruly um, and kind of... Uh, uh, mass kind of exploited class in all of history, uh, the working class. 
uh, a really rambunctious and radically democratic uh, class that from very early on organised uh, massive demonstrations, strikes, uh, protests and so on. So this is what the ruling class was dealing with in the 1800s and have and they didn't actually have anything to solve it at that time. There wasn't a police force, um, like you said at the start, Roz. This was not uh, something that existed before. There, were, uh, there was a military that you could have come in, ride in with sabres and murder everyone and have massacres. This uh, was not a very useful thing when you have constant rebellions from below because it would create martyrs, um, you would have, you know, Often it would actually uh, boost the cause of those uh, of those rebellions, uh, and then you had a pretty defunct and ineffectual um, kind of series of knights watchmen and people who were basically uh, appointed by lottery to you know have a part time job of kind of going around and trying to uh, contain disorder. So this is totally uh, unacceptable to the capitalist class. After a while, what they needed was a uniformed, um, waged. Uh, police force that could go amongst the population, um, you know, spy on them, survey them uh, and keep them in line. Um, one of the early, if I can go on a bit longer, one of the yeah. early examples of this that I think is really telling is of the um, the police on the River Thames, which was actually the first police force before the the uh, Bobbies, uh, the Metropolitan Police in England. So this was in 1798 and a Wealthy merchant named Patrick Calhoun uh, introduced them. He'd been campaigning for years to other merchants, managed to get a police force of 50, um, 50 uniformed salaried police officers. And their first job was actually to police the dock workers on the River Thames, who commonly just took, you know, bags of sugar and bags of tobacco and stuff that they had helped unload off the ships. They saw that as part of their wage. This is just unacceptable to the capitalist class and the merchants. And so they actually had a, this police force that its main job was to pay wages to the workers workers and then to uh, enforce an anti-theft dress code. So they were like the pocket police. They would go around and pat down workers as they left and so on. Um, and to give you a sense of how like unacceptable this was to the working class at the time, uh, within a year, 6,000 workers, uh, dock workers and their families had attempted to burn down that police station with Patrick Calhoun inside. So um, this was a really contested thing for many years and it's why it took them 30 years after that to actually introduce uh, the Metropolitan Police. Mm. I mean, uh, one other funny thing about the night watchmen was that mostly they were seen as pretty inefficient because they were drunk a lot of the time because they just were working on their own and they just wandered around and didn't really fancy doing much because why would they? Um, whereas the police become, as a unit of people, I think, disciplined um, to patrol in a very uh, specific way. And actually, Marx and Engels, you know, they're working on their analysis of capitalism in this period in the, in the mid-1800s and looking at particularly the experiences of workers in um, Britain, but also internationally, and thinking about how the police as this new institution that hasn't been seen before capitalism is actually there really yeah, as, a as a tool of the ruling class to help um, exploit these workers who are having this experience for the first time of being forced into this exploitative relationship. Um, with the ruling class. And so it's not surprising really when people have been driven off their land into these urban areas, forced to work, you know, worked in appalling conditions for, you know, a pittance of a wage that they 
rebel and they resist and then the ruling class think, oh, we've got to stop them from doing this. And that's sort of really one of the key um, one of the key things that the police really were about trying to um, enable as much exploitation as possible. So if it's not about fighting crime, I mean, we've kind of talked about this a bit, but um, I guess a question that comes up in terms of who the police are is, you know, if they're workers then, does that make them part of the working class? Because they're working for a wage as well. Um, like even if their role is to sort of uh, do some of this kind of patrolling work for the ruling class, they're still essentially workers. Is that something you want to say something about Luca? Yeah, I think that that's, um, it's not just an interesting analytical question in terms of, you know, you know, what class position do uh, police uh, cops occupy, but it's an important question that virtually any significant kind of social movement has to come up against at some point, because anytime people collectively get together and try to change something dramatically about society, it's inevitable that they're going to come up against the armed force of the state, which exists to kind of enforce that status quo. And we can obviously see that um, right now as we speak with the mass protests in response to George Floyd's murder in the United States and across the world. And yeah, I guess there's a, the key kind of debate is whether the police are part of the working class. As uh, you mentioned, Roz, most cops um, do not own factories. They work for a wage. So superficially, they can seem to be uh, quite similar to other workers. You know, they even are branched under emergency uh, services, like for instance, firefighters who um, socials are very supportive um, when they organize and take action. But I don't think uh, for Marxists, we don't understand uh, the class position of different groups of people in society just by, you know, uh, how they receive their remuneration, how they're paid, whether they work for a wage. It's about your relationship to the rest of society and how production is organised. And the thing about the police force is that everything about their existence pits them against the working class as a whole. So the police exist to, um, for instance, police picket lines when workers try to organise industrial action to strike for better wages and conditions. The force that is sent down to break up those picket lines and resume business as usual is the police. Um, they exist to uh, enforce all sorts of uh, just uh, social control on ordinary people from, you know, fining and imprisoning people for uh, homelessness and sleeping on the streets um, to targeting uh, minority sections of the working class who are oppressed. Um, and particularly they exist to uh, police and respond to uh, protests, riots, any type of uprising where people collectively, working class people get a sense of their agency and power by um, taking on the government, corporations, uh, symbols of authority. So everything that the police do in their day-to-day -day life ranges them against um, ordinary working class people. And it means, I think, that they're thoroughly, um, when struggles emerge, uh, come down on the side of the ruling class and the state. And it's important to look at the history of that because this has come up in a bunch of um, <laughs> recent movements, um, everything from uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Occupy movements across the world in 2011, where there was a debate about, you know, the slogan of the movement was, we are the 99% and the question was raised, well, aren't, aren't police part of the 99% too? You know, they're not the super rich. Can we win them over? Through the, the kind of Extinction Rebellion movement last year, where uh, a lot of people argued that we could uh, win our demands by singing hymns to the cops and attempting to, the, you know, to morally win them to the argument that they have something to win out of a, um, a healthier planet. Through to, um, yeah, I guess the movement today, I think it's important to say that the police aren't part of the working class because there's no serious historical precedent for any significant section of the police force being won over to working class struggle and popular protest. And if our side is not prepared for the fact that they're actually a reactionary obstacle to achieving what we need, then we're less prepared to confront the question of state repression um, as it comes up. Um, so one way this is actually coming up in a positive way today, I think in the United States, 
is there's now pressure on um, the union movement in the United States to exclude the police union from all of their institutions. Now, a police union is another thing that that can sound like, oh, well, you know, maybe if the cops band together, they could show a bit more solidarity and have some kind of collective agency. But um, because everything that police do is so um, reactionary and about um, uh, kind of intervening in favour of the status quo, um, police unions, I think, are reactionary institutions as well. Um, you can see that with the... Um, the head of the policing in Minneapolis, where this all started, uh, Bob Kroll, one of the country's most prominent Trump supporters, through to the policing unions in uh, France, which right as we speak are organising mass protests, the police, for the right to uh, use chokeholds on uh, people that they detain. They're organising protests for the right to brutalise other protesters. So every time the police actually collectively organise, they usually push for things that are about giving themselves more power to brutalise people, more power to repress crowds. Um, and so I think it's important to say that Firstly, yeah, that we don't think that we can actually win the police to our side in struggles and we want to treat them as our enemy. And secondly, that police unions and their organisations are not a legitimate part of the workers' movement and the left and they should be excluded um, from all the institutions that we organise in. Yeah, I mean, in Australia, we're probably most familiar with the Police Federation when they have their their uh, leaders come onto the TV and defend the cops from do from killing Aboriginal people in custody and so on. Like, that's basically what the police union is there for, is to come out and say, well, it was completely defensible, um, whatever a despicable racist crime that they carried out that week, you know. Um, and in America as well, I think the police union also play a very political role that is probably less well-known, that they donate to particular... Um, political candidates, campaigns and so on and sort of wield a bit of influence in that sense and particularly I think Democrats are often under pressure from the police union um, and are concerned with the police union kind of condemning them for not caring about law and order and all of that kind of crap. Um, but, yeah, they just literally play only a reactionary role and they should not be part of any trade union movement and they should not be part of... Um, Trade tool in Victoria, for that matter. It should be a demand of all of us to get to kick them out of those organisations. Our across the world. So we've painted a pretty, like, you know, uh, realistic but like, um, yeah, negative picture of the police, and it can seem kind of obvious to some people on the left that the police are not our friends, but more mainstream views, I guess this idea that we need the police for something or that it's just normal and like it's a really complicated question to kind of think about um, what you would do if you didn't have the police, that kind of thing. Like how is it that the police have come to be so normalised that people just think it's a natural thing that we need police and so on? Um, Emma? Well, I mean, I guess it's important to emphasise people didn't accept it at first. And I think as well, whenever um, whenever there have been uprisings or and they don't necessarily have to be motivated by um, opposition to the police to begin with, but because the police are there to um, ultimately to defend the capitalist system and to repress uh, movements against the capitalist system, People can often learn in those periods uh, exactly what the police are actually like and consciousness can change en masse. And that's what we're seeing right now. But it's not the first time in history that 
you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people have um, realised the kind of or started to realise the kind of role that the police play in society. Even in Britain in 1984, the miners' strike um, gave people a real rude awakening there about the role of the police because they were so brutal in opposition to this uh, to the workers' movement then. So, um, but I think there's a whole series of things that have over the centuries uh, in you know every country meant that the the police become to some extent accepted. Um, so first of all, is like a, a whole series of ideological things. So the invention of criminology on the one hand, which is you know supposedly this science of the criminal mind, um, was really used to justify policing in a whole series of ways. So um, you can essentially it's a, a way of trying to paint a picture of the good, honest uh, citizen, you know, a good worker who's quiet, unquestioning and lawful uh, and obeys all of the, the rules of society um, versus a minority of terrible criminals who are there to, you know, upset and, and destroy the kind of peace of society. Um, and I think that's really used to discipline the entire working class, the entire population, um, because, you know, you can, you're taught to fear this tiny criminal uh, minority. You're taught to fear becoming, part, you know, a, a member of that criminal minority as well if you dare to uh, break any of the rules. Um, and, of course, that is all massively racially charged as well because from the very beginning, criminology was supposedly this, like I said, a science of uh, the mind and it went very... Uh, it went um, easily along with the the racist kind of supposed science and phrenology of the time as well to say that, um, you know, uh, Africans or uh, black people in general, uh, the darker races are more likely to commit crimes and to be uh, disobedient and so on. So, uh, and I think in in a lot of ways that that kind of uh, ideology of um, criminology has helped to justify what the police do because if there's this horrible uh, minority in society that is uh, out to ruin everything, the kind of enemy within, um, then it justifies having a police force uh, often be quite brutal and uh, often actually dispense with their own laws uh, and, you know, um, terrorise this particular population supposedly to keep the peace for the rest of us. Um, whereas I think obviously the role that actually plays is to discipline the entire population and to, um, and to enforce a really unequal system. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. And I think that eugenics basically and, and criminology go hand in hand, like as sort of as pseudoscience really. Um, that idea that there's a natural inclination towards criminality and that is connected with race, uh, even things like um, gender expression, sexuality in, in the early years of um, criminology. You know, uh, I remember preparing for a um, session I did at Marxism a few years ago with Vicky Roach, who's an Aboriginal activist, um, abolitionist, and one of the things I read about the criminalization of women in particular was the sort of a description of a criminal woman was always like manly looking and this kind of thing that it goes hand in hand with all of the other kind of prejudices in society. And, um, and that's certainly true. And, and, you know, all of the cop shows, like there are so many uh, crime dramas, basically, it's like half of everything on TV is a crime drama, which gives the idea that Crime is everywhere. Like there's all these psychopaths and murderers and all of that, um, partic particularly people you don't know. Um, and that just 
can't help but create the sense that that is a real thing. Some people are criminal and all of that kind of stuff. So it takes a lot of ideology really on the part of the ruling class and their particular um, tools, including the media, to keep on reminding people basically that you can't trust your neighbour and that fits again with the breaking down of solidarity. So I guess the antidote to that is struggle. And Luca, you want to say something about kind of where people break with these ideas as they are now uh, is not because of some education program. <laughs> it's because of um, the experience of sort of mass struggle. Yeah, well, I think it's really notable. If you look back at history, it's actually striking how many times the, how many of the kind of greatest rebellions that we look at through, through history, from everything from the Stonewall Rebellion that kicked off the gay liberation movement through to the Arab Spring, that whole wave of revolutions in 2011 across the Middle East and the Arab world, to the uprising today, how many of them have been provoked by police brutality, instances of the police um, you know, overstepping the mark and pushing people too far and forcing resistance, which can kind of light a fire under all the other grievances that people have about the kind of repressive and violent society um, that we live under. So police brutality doesn't just kind of beat people down and make them pliant. It can also force people to fight back as well. And I think it's in those periods where people fight back against the police and challenge their oppressive role in society that attitudes towards the police force can can change really, really dramatically. Um, and there have been some pretty, I think, incredible instances of this over the last few weeks. So at the very start of the protest in response to George Floyd's murder, um, people remember the inspiring scenes of protesters uh, essentially laying siege to the third precinct building in Minneapolis, which was the police department where the four murderer cops were formerly employed. Um, they laid siege to it and then they burnt it down. And then I thought the most remarkable thing was they carried out an opinion poll about a week later and found that 54% of Americans supported burning down the police station. Um, this is one of the countries quite like the one that we live in Australia, where uh, society is just saturated with pro-cop propaganda. But when people start to fight back and say, actually, we're not going to take this, this is not normal, we're not going to accept the brutalisation of whole communities, wholesale uh, mass murder uh, by the state, uh, people can actually start to challenge the normalisation of that stuff. And there's all these other little victories that are kind of coming along with it that show that people's ideas about the police are changing. Um, one that I thought was important, even though it's a small victory, is that the TV show Cops, which has been going for 30 years and is one of the central, uh, I think a really important kind of cultural propaganda weapon for normalising the police, showing, you know, uh, all the people that they harass, are, you know, actually just like, you know, um, kooks and lunatics or criminals or untrustworthy individuals and the police, you know, they play this essential role. That show has been pulled after 30 years of being on the air. The other one that I thought was uh, kind of funny, actually, was at the height of uh, the protests in Minneapolis, um, Lego announced that they would no longer, um, to all of their retailers, not to advertise uh, Lego sets that had police officers in them for a whole period. So mm -hmm. just that whole thing about their role being normalised through society, you know, that you're a kid and you get maybe a toy of a firefighter and one of a police officer and you think about which one you might want to grow up to be. All that stuff can kind of be pushed against when people uh, struggle. And so those are trivial examples, but... They're obviously reflective of a much more profound shift in people's consciousness that's going on at the moment. I think they also pulled the White House Lego set as well because <laughs> I don't know what people wanted to maybe just buy it and burn it down or something, melt it. Um, so it, all of that raises the question around, I guess, a socialist perspective on crime and, and the kind of things that the police do to focus on like basically maintaining order, which goes right back through the history that we just talked about that um you know this idea that there's all this crime going on like 
Emma, what would you say about um, that question? Well, I think a neat starting point is to say that the number of police uh, and the amount of funding the police gets and any alterations really to police has virtually nothing to do with the supposed crime rate. And that's well documented. You can follow throughout history uh, the crime rate in any country and uh, rarely does that have anything to do with the uh, the numbers of police or the funding the police receive. Usually the funding that the police receive uh, receives has a lot more to do with the kind of level of class struggle or rebellion in society. Um, so I think that tells you something. But in terms of crime, like I think the what is considered a crime in our society is important to to talk about. It, the law itself has this interesting separation between criminal law, which really is basically any laws that poor people uh, commit, and corporate and, and civil proceedings, so corporate law. Uh, and there's a whole series of things you can do as a corporation and as the, the you know, head of a corporation that kill people and maim people. You know, you think of industrial murder or the uh, horrific injuries that workers often receive at work. Um, the, you know, horrific war crimes of, of uh, states against other countries and against their populations. Uh, none of these things fall under the, the banner of criminal law. Right, they either are perfectly fine and go unpunished, as with you know the crimes of the US in Iraq and Afghanistan, for example, uh, or they fall under the banner of corporate uh, law, and and so they're sort of um, no one really is punished for that. Maybe there's a fine involved or something, but the individuals who made these decisions are never punished. Meanwhile, if you you know if you uh, steal something as a poor person. Um, you will be tried usually under criminal law. And the punishments for those uh, crimes are, you know, imprisonment and often quite serious attacks on the, the liberties of, um, of the individuals involved. Uh, so there's already from the very outset a separation between, I think, the crimes of the poor and the crimes of the elite and the rich, if they're even considered crimes at all. Um, and it's, the, it's interesting to say as well that the police don't, they completely ignore all of those uh, crimes and misdemeanors basically carried out by the rich and powerful. There's not a, you know, like a wing of the police force that goes around the um, the headquarters of BHP and makes sure that they're treating their workers right. Um, there's not a section of the police force that's dedicated to cracking down on the use of cocaine and prostitution in Sydney Harbour, for example, because that's all pretty much done by rich people. Um, whereas there are, you know, there's the over-policing of Indigenous communities and working class communities across the country. And, you know, this is the same in, in country after country. Um, so I think the, the role of the police and the role of criminal law is really to, um, to enforce property relations and to enforce um, the dictates of, of capitalism uh, on the poor. Mm. And even in those cases where, you know, uh, and a hell of a lot of policing ends up being about alcohol and Drugs. So it's not about then looking after those people who may be um, on the streets and drinking or using drugs or whatever. It's to like bash the shit out of them and remind people of the fact that they have to behave in these orderly ways in society. So that's just the the vast majority of what police do, which is how they become brutalized themselves and kind of uh, unreformable. I think in that institution. Um. Luca, do you want to talk about um, this question as well in terms of crime and the kind of crimes that the police themselves commit? 
I think that's a good question um, because it's often a retort that socialists will get when we say that we don't think that police should exist. Um, you'll get the kind of question of, well, who are you going to call at uh, two a.m. when someone's breaking into your house? Uh, I think it's yeah, it's worth kind of having a bit of a balance sheet about like who really committing the uh, kind of greatest crimes against individuals in this society. One thing that I found uh, quite extraordinary during these readings is if you're talking about uh, being the victim of violent crimes. Um, murder. So in the United States, statistically, if you're going to be unfortunate enough to be murdered by a stranger, there's actually a one in three chance that the person that's murdered you is a police officer. So disproportionately, the people that you should actually be worried about are not the shadowy figure kind of looming outside your bedroom window, but, you know, highly armed police officers who can break into your house and shoot you at any moment. And that's why it's quite unsurprising when you listen to interviews, I think, with a lot of people um, who are participating in the protests in the United States at the moment and arguing for the abolition of the police. Um, when they're asked, well, you know, who, who are you going to call when you're in danger? The very common refrain, particularly from um, people from the black community, is, well, we never call the police because we know of all these very high profile cases where people have uh, felt in danger and they've called the police to assist them and then they've been murdered in their own homes. So um, they're the people really to watch out for if you're worried about um, violent crimes being uh, committed against your person. When it comes to theft of property as well, um, socialists, we often argue, I guess, that capitalism is based on a, a form of legalised theft, which is exploitation, the fact that we're all systematically underpaid for the work we do. But it's also based on other really even more direct forms of legalised theft. So there's this thing which is called civil asset forfeiture, and this is where the cops, if they deem you to be, um, you know, in suspicion of having committed a crime, um, they can seize basically any of your assets and property um, as uh, under kind of uh, the argument that it is a result of uh, like profiting from criminal activities. So I read a story about a, a man in Victoria actually named Robert Maloney who was made homeless. He lost his home um, because he was found growing cannabis plants in his backyard, which the cops decided were of a uh, quote unquote commercial quantity. Um, he was growing to smoke himself um, and they seized the house that he built uh, with his own hands 30 years ago and tossed him out onto the street. That's a pretty common thing. In the United States, the stats are even more um, shocking, I think. It turns out that the amount of property that is stolen by the police um, in the form of uh, asset forfeiture actually outweighs all other forms of uh, theft, you know, burglary, carjacking, all these sorts of things. So the cops actually steal more than the supposed criminals do. Um, and in a lot of cases, uh, the value of this stuff that they confiscate, it doesn't even just go kind of like back into the treasury or into the general pool of resources. The police department that has seized the property, um, that's their property now. So there's a whole system by which they're incentivized to essentially going, go around looting communities, uh, taking people's money, taking their homes, taking their cars, auctioning them off um, so that they have more money to buy riot gear and assault rifles. So it's a pretty obscene state of affairs. But yeah, if you're... Um, if you're murdered, there's a pretty high chance that it's a police officer that's murdered you. And if you're stolen from, there's a pretty high chance that it was a cop that stole your property. Yeah. The, if I can just jump in, the um, one of the arguments until recently uh, against the police, one of the only things you would ever hear against them, you know, in TV shows and stuff was that uh, obviously there's some bad apples and, and some police precincts might be really corrupt. And I think that idea of uh, corruption you know, even the word, like as though there's something foreign that's infiltrated the the police um, and kind of corrupted them uh, is interesting because 
basically I think every police uh, precinct ever is corrupt, partly for the reasons that Lucas said, but also these are people who have immense discretionary power over the rest of the population. They basically get to decide whether or not to arrest people, what to charge them with, whether or not to even approach them at all. Um, they're essentially, you know, an armed gang who get to roam the streets and do whatever they want and they can't really be questioned by the rest of the population. Um, so I think for that reason, they're really elbow deep in not just, um, uh, not just murder, not just, uh, stealing, you know, property from people, but also the professional criminal underworld, like organized drugs and, uh, and other forms of organized crime. I just think these, uh, these organised networks could not exist and could not continue without um, not just the tacit support but actually the the help and organisation of the police uh, who really facilitate the illegal drug trades and, and you know, make lucrative profits off all of it. So, um, so, like, some drug bosses, you know, can pay off cops and operate relatively unmolested and the cops can then go and arrest and intimidate their competition. Um, so there's a whole layer of what Marxists might call the lumpen bourgeoisie, the kind of um, underground uh, capitalists uh, who, because of the particular trade they're involved in, uh, have to operate semi-illegally or illegally, that are helped and aided and abetted by the police. I don't think there's any other way they could possibly um, operate, really. Uh, and that all kind of is just, while it's frowned upon and, you know, um, not really talked about, it's part of just how every functioning capitalist economy works. So I guess a lot of people now are, are talking about, well, what are we going to do about it? And we should have a bit of discussion on that. Um, and it's kind of presented as a spectrum of reforms going from sort of more training and, you know, awareness raising at one end through to like abolishing the police and replacing with something else at the other end. So let's talk through some of that. Um, Luca, so, you know, defunding the police is is probably the most popular demand. Uh, what would you say about that? Well, yeah, I think it's important to sort out uh, what sorts of reforms are actually about genuinely curbing the uh, power of the police and which ones are just a, a fig leaf for allowing things to continue as they are. So I think one of the things that a lot of Democrats, for instance, in the United States have brought up over the last couple of weeks is the idea that what we really need is a, a retraining of the police. We need more um, what they call implicit bias training, which is about uh, teaching police officers about their subconscious racial biases, um, you know, more professionalization in the police force. These things are all absolute rubbish, in my opinion. They've actually been implemented all over the place for decades and decades, um, and they do nothing to stop racialized and violent uh, policing. There was one instance I read about yesterday, actually, of um, a, an African-American man in the States who uh, was actually shot by somebody from the police force that he had um, just given racial bias training to. So the idea that that's something that's going to curb the power of these out-of-control thugs, um, you know, with entire military caches in their local police departments, I think is a complete um, joke. I think defunding uh, is something that the movement should fight for today, though. I think as socialists, we want to say the perfect, right, you know, sweet spot in terms of defunding is 100% defunding. We don't think that the police should exist at all. But if a mass movement in the United States today can fight to dramatically reduce the size uh, and power of the police force, that's a good thing. And it's, it's part of a recognition I think people have that 
the police, there's not just cultural problems within them, but they're our enemies. People want to disempower this institution. They want it to have less guns, less police officers on the beat, less ability to brutalize people. And so just defunding the police is not going to solve all the problems um, that we have. But it's worth saying that, like, I think it is something to fight for today and can be a way to increase people's confidence to take on these repressive institutions in even more dramatic ways in the future. But as a socialist, obviously, I'm for getting rid of the police entirely as an institution that's anti-working class and fundamentally rooted in the pretty um, sick system that we live under. Mm. And it's obviously been a long-term demand and part of being a revolutionary socialist is that we think the police should be abolished, that prison shouldn't exist. Like, socialists are abolitionists, um, and it's not always the first thing that we present on our kind of what we stand for and what we don't. But I think it's worth just saying that in terms of today's debates, that this is not something that socialists have to kind of think through. It's been part of what we've argued, uh, you know, since Marx and Engels, in fact, argued that the police shouldn't exist because they're a part of the capitalist system and exploitation and oppression. Um, so, Emma, really what we're saying is there's no way to make the police less racist, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, in terms of why they are, you know, so racist, I think yeah, it, you can't separate the police as an institution from the whole of society. We live in a racist society that, uh, you know, se- basically segregates the um, the working class in a series of ways, uh, oppresses, you know, adds these extra special oppressions um, to the the experience of people because they're black or uh, indigenous or Hispanic or uh, whatever. Um, and those people are, you know, at the bottom of the the chain in society. At the, um, and I think the like any system that is based on that is going to have to keep those people down, especially. And so extra uh, attention is paid to them by the police. Uh, it goes along with the stuff I was saying as, before as well that they're uh, they're criminalised. And if you look at the history of the criminalisation of populations. Um, going along with that racialization, it's really interesting. Like the Irish, for example, which Luca mentioned at the start, um, were also seen, you know, not now, but um, centuries ago in Britain as a um, a criminal uh, section of the population. They were the enemies within who were constantly, um, you know, at risk of rebellion. And there was a truth in that because they were deeply oppressed and, the, you know, the most screwed over by uh, the system of British capitalism. So they were more likely to revolt. They were more likely to uh, not, you know, respect uh, the Queen or, you know, um, not kind of uh, want to bow down before British capitalism. And that's been the case of Aboriginal people in Australia as well. They had their land stolen, genocide committed against them. People don't just accept this and shut up about it. Um, so they become, you know, a quite rebellious section of the of the population. And so uh, extra, both extra policing and violence is done to them in order to keep them down, but also they're criminalised. So there's an ideological component that says that um, they're, you know, the extra oppression they face is justified. And nowhere is that more true, I think, than the US, where the, you know, you have a population that was enslaved um, and, you know, really like the whole of American capitalism was built on the brutal slavery of um, of black people. And and that has kind of, you know, continued in various forms today. Uh, they're hyper-exploited section of the working class uh, today. And so, and they've also, because of that, 
been a very rebellious section of the working class um, throughout American history, the most likely to lead uh, massive rebellions, you know, throughout the 30s and then the 60s. And today, that's what we're seeing again. And so the criminalization of black people has often gone along with an attempt to politically discredit them and to keep them down. The most obvious example of this, which is... um, you know, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's real, which is the American government, the um, the CIA, you know, purposely um, distributing coca- uh, crack cocaine and drugs throughout um, the, the black ghettos in the 1970s, as well as murdering Black Panthers in their beds. You know, this was a concerted attempt to criminalise the, the black population to rather than have a, you know, black uh, population that was leading multiracial struggles, uh, try and criminalise them um, uh, and justify the absolute brutality against them. So I think because of what capitalism is, it always needs to do that. It always needs to divide us and it always needs the police to play, a, you know, an important role in that. So people are listening thinking, yeah, fuck, abolish the police, ACAB, look at, um, how is that possible to abolish the police? Well, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant thing that millions of people are asking this question across the world today. And as socialists, I think we want to be pretty clear that we're not going to abolish the police without overthrowing capitalism as a system. Since it became really established, capitalism has proven that without a permanent professional uh, apparatus of people who are basically dedicated full time to maintaining social order and repressing resistance, um, the system couldn't survive in the form it did, you know, being based off the rule of such a tiny, tiny minority of people. And so if we want to really get rid of the police force, there's things we can fight around today, as I mentioned, and I think we should be fighting to curb their powers in the here and now. But the police force are not going to be um, abolished without getting rid of the system that has bred them. I think that's important because there have already been some, I think, uh, quite tricky uh, PR attempts by local governments in the United States to pretend that they are abolishing the police force. So People might have seen in the news that in response to the protests uh, recently, the Minneapolis City Council announced that they were abolishing their police department. What that really meant is that they want to look into calling it something else. But the idea that they're going to get rid of this uh, institution that is uh, essential to maintaining social order, whilst the you know power is still in the hands of the capital state and the capitalist class, yeah, is quite utopian, I think. So as revolutionary socialists, I think we want to argue that it's possible to live in a world without police, a world where we can actually organise ourselves collectively without a small group of people standing above us, wielding violence over us. But that means that we want to transform everything about the way that society is organised. We want to create a society that doesn't have a need for those sorts of institutions because it's one where we actually work collectively, uh, where people aren't alienated, where people aren't exploited. Um, It doesn't require just huge amounts of violence every single day to keep itself ticking along. Yeah. Emma, do you want to say something about that? Because I reckon we should finish here with sort of like, the positive vision of, you know, a society that doesn't need the police? Yeah, well, I think a society that doesn't need the police is one that is classless, that's run by the vast majority, well, everyone in society collectively and democratically, uh, one where people don't need for any, you know, want for anything. uh, People don't go hungry just because they can't afford uh, to buy food, where people aren't homeless which, by the way, is it's basically illegal to be homeless and to, you know, sleep outside a shop or whatever in most countries on earth, um, where, you know, no, that never happens because I think the vast majority of crimes that, or, you know, supposed crimes that are punished in our society are ones of ordinary people, poor people, 
uh, and they're crimes against the ruling class. They're crimes of, against property, basically. Um, or they're victimless crimes like, you know, drug use, which uh, often is really, I think, associated with uh, people's alienation from each other. So I think a society where uh, ordinary people run their own lives collectively uh, could be one where, you know, people are able to discipline each other and make sure that, you know, there's not all this horrible antisocial behaviour, but it's also one where I don't think there would be any need for antisocial behaviour uh, or for mistreating each other. Um, and there wouldn't be a class of people that needs to um, lord it over everybody else and needs a violent police force in order to do that. So uh, I absolutely think that's um, possible, but I think it means not just fighting for the abolition of the police. And I agree with uh, Luca that really that there's a lot of reforms we can win along the way and people are already winning them in America, which is incredible. But actually abolishing the police means abolishing all of the class relations uh, that require it. And that means, I think, a revolution against capitalism and ordinary people taking over control of all the wealth that we've created. Thank you, Emma. Um, and thank you, Luca, for this discussion. There's obviously heaps more that we could talk about and maybe we'll come back and do a follow-up. If people have questions they want to um, get us to talk about also on Red Flag Radio, um, you can get in touch um, with the show and the email address that we have Red Flag Radio is in the show notes here. We're happy to hear your feedback anytime and also your suggestions for discussion topics. Um, and if you're a patron of the show, your requests will be bumped up <laughs> the list. So uh, don't forget to do that. Um, thank you, Emma. Thank you, Luca and Liam on the dials as usual. And um, this is a fantastic time to be having these discussions and debates. So. We hope to see a world where we can get rid of the police. Um, and that's why we're revolutionary socialists. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. We have a world to win. <laughs>